So if you've ever watched an episode of Law and Order, and side note, I mean, at this point, if you haven't, can we even be friends? Anyway, <laughs> so if you have, you'll know Jack McCoy, who is the district attorney with a capital D and a capital A in that show. And I'm talking about the original Law and Order, not the 27 variations of it currently. Hey, hey, nothing wrong with the variations either. I know, but for this purpose, right, we're talking about Jack McCoy. And together with his team, he made decisions about a lot of people's guilt or innocence and argued those, you know, decisions with the facts in court. So typically, when we think about a criminal trial, like what he was doing, there are two phases, right? There's first culpability, figuring out the guilt and sentencing. So in that first phase, right, culpability, either the judge or the jury decides that the defendant is guilty or not. And then if the defendant is found guilty in that second phase, the judge or jury decides what that sentence should be. No, I love that you pointed that out. And I'm going to point out something random because is one of the random things that I've done in my life. Do you remember that time when I was an extra in the Law and Order franchise when I was living in New York, right? Including in one of those courtroom scenes that you're speaking of. So beyond my illustrious television experience and education about what happens in a courtroom in a fake TV show, but especially because I've never actually yet had to serve on a jury, I'm one of those people who doesn't actually understand what a DA does or what their role is regarding like mass incarceration. And so that is a lot of what we are going to be focused on today. Let's get a little more analytical than law and order. And by the end of this episode, we hope that you will not only know more about what your DAs do, but that you have some ideas of how to hold them accountable, just like they do for the rest of us. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that normalizes and models conversation about race and racism so we can help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. All right. That is me saying, let's get started. Let's do a basic question, but one that I think we really have to ask in order to be all on the same page. You gave a little primer, but what is a DA? Okay. So DAs or district attorneys, right, are among the most powerful elected officials. And I know when I just said that, some of you in your head said, yeah, right. I can think of like 25 more. Yeah, you're so dramatic, Misasha. Right. But I'm telling you, who else has the power to not only charge someone with a crime, but advocate for additional years in prison for said crime? All right. So when you think about what I just said, that's what I thought. Yeah, they have the power to really mess with anybody's life. Okay, got you. Right. And if you've been following our civics arc, where we've talked about government at the federal, state, and local levels, the role of the district attorney falls in that state level for the purposes of today's conversation, because it's often the state's constitution that dictates what a DA can and cannot do. So because each state has slightly different roles and responsibilities for their DA, I'm going to focus on the role of the DA in my own state, which is California. But this is a reminder, and we're going to say this again and again through this episode, you should look up what the DAs do in your state. All right. So the DA in California is a constitutionally elected county official, right? The district attorney is responsible for the prosecution of criminal violations of state law and county ordinances occurring within a county under a specific California government section code, right? Which is, or a code section, 26500. So underline criminal there, right? It's different because there are two types of crimes, criminal and civil. DAs handle criminal cases. This includes investigation and apprehension, as well as prosecution in court. The DA in California also serves as a legal advisor to the grand jury, 
which are those that group of people, right, that are not your jury service, people where you're asked to serve, you know, once a year or for a week, a year or whatever. These are people who have this position on the grand jury for specific cases. And also the DAs through its family support division enforce parental financial obligations. If you're thinking about where does the money for the DA comes from, that comes from the Board of Supervisors, which is back to our local civics episode, if you want to hear more about what they do. So they exercise budgetary control, but not operational control over the elected DAs, right? And if you think about the DAs in California, they have, like I was talking about at the start, almost unlimited power to impact the lives of millions of people, their families, and entire communities by deciding who to punish, who to send to prison, and how to charge them. And I will note, for pro bono work, I have seen and worked with sentencing guidelines. So there is a wide range, right, of what you can be sentenced for within the crime that you've been charged with. So don't think that because you do A crime, you get B number of years, right? And we'll talk more about that later. In the criminal legal system, DAs are supposed to represent the entire community, right, which is a huge responsibility and sometimes one that they don't live up to. I appreciate all of this and the focus on criminal because I heard you say two things that jumped out at me, enforces parental financial obligations. So the DA would be the one to choose whether like, say, in a divorce case, you have custody, like is a parent actually supporting the children of that marriage, right? Well, I think they enforce custody agreements, right? So if the custody agreement has been in place, right, and there is a failure to follow that. Adhere to that, you know, budget or the plan. And then the second thing that I know is up in the air in a lot of states is the criminalization of abortion. So the DAs in your state would control whether or not to really pursue and follow up on whatever the state policy is or to potentially consider changing what the state policies are with regard to criminalizing abortion. They will decide who to charge with the crime, Right. So, yes, on that level. Yes. A hundred percent. OK, so I appreciate that because I think it's important for everyone out there listening who's not in the state of California to find out how your district attorney gets in office and what their roles are, because I know in Colorado it is also an elected position, but your state may be different. Speaking of roles, you were talking about this sort of generally, but what is the office, right? Like I'm bracketing it here with my hands. What does the office of the DA look like in terms of responsibilities? Yeah, awesome. Because it's not just the DA, right? And if going back to law and order, it wasn't just Jack McCoy. In fact, Jack McCoy wasn't often in court all the time, right? There are other prosecutors who work under the DA's office. And although there are variations in every county, right? And again, I'm talking about California. So find out what this office, how the DA's office functions in your own county and state. A typical district attorney's office in California includes the following. So first, municipal court operations, right? So that is prosecuting misdemeanors and presenting preliminary felony hearings in municipal courts, right? Which is not like the big federal courts. We're talking much smaller courts. Superior court operations, right? And municipal courts, I should say, includes like traffic court, right? These are different levels, right? City level. Superior court, right? Which is sort of the state level courts presenting all felony cases in superior court, including legal motions, which includes like things like writs and appeals, also extradition and grand jury matters, right? So that's sort of the next level up of courts. Then, like we were just talking about, right, family support operations, right? They provide civil and criminal prosecution of family support violations, welfare, fraud, and child abduction. 
They also investigate. They provide initial investigation and assistance and trial preparation through the investigation of criminal acts. And again, law and order focuses a lot on this part, right? The investigation, because I mean, probably it's the most interesting because some of this can be really tedious. And also finally, administrative services, right? They provide the budget, the purchasing, space planning, personnel services, payroll, clerical department, and data services functions to the DA, like everything that keeps the DA's office going. So Again, in all but a few counties, the civil, which are non-prosecutorial, right, functions are handled by the county council, which is that person that we talked about also in our local episodes. No, I got it. That's awesome. So what I'm hearing you say is that the office of the DA has a lot of different branches and prosecutes a lot of different crimes, along with providing support on the investigative side. If you know me and my family, I have seen Law and Order more times than I'd like to admit. But this is from my childhood. I remember with my brothers watching this on family vacations, we would be obsessed and like have Law and Order marathons. But anyway, if you ask me to recite how a case goes from the crime being committed, right, to however it ends up, whether it's prison or walking free, I actually would not have any idea. So can we go through that briefly? Yeah. So again, I know I've said this about 25 times, we're focusing on criminal cases, just like law and order, because the county council, again, typically handles civil cases. So a criminal case begins when a crime is committed and reported, right? So police respond by investigating the crime, which may include things like interviewing victims, witnesses and suspects, collecting physical evidence, viewing crime scenes and photographing crime scenes, and identifying suspects through lineups. You know, and that sort of happens when a crime is committed when the police aren't there. But when a crime is committed in a police officer's presence, an officer may arrest a suspect on the spot without an arrest warrant. So the officer may also arrest without a warrant if he or she has probable cause to believe that certain misdemeanors or any felony was committed, even though not in the officer's presence. And if you've been following the news, this becomes really problematic a lot of times when we layer in identity politics like race. Because notably, in other situations, an arrest warrant is required. So you can see if that's the loophole, sometimes that argument or the alleged crime in heavy air quotes goes very differently, right? So even when an officer has the right to arrest a suspect without a warrant, the officer may decide to wait and obtain a warrant. I don't know how often that happens. But anyway, the officer will later submit a request to the DA's office requesting a formal complaint and warrant and suggesting potential charges to be authorized. So that's where the police and the DA start to collaborate. And this is generally the first time, right, that a prosecutor or a DA is involved in the case. And I'm going to use those words interchangeably at this point. At this stage, the DA determines whether a person should be charged with a crime and if so, what that crime should be, right, based on the elements of the crime. So the prosecutor thoroughly reviews all reports and records concerning the case, including witness statements, and also the suspect's prior criminal or traffic record, depending on what's at issue here. Occasionally, the reviewing prosecutor sends the case back to the police to conduct additional investigation. So the prosecutor can authorize filing a charge or charges if he or she reasonably believes probable cause exists the suspect committed the offense. And... He or she reasonably believes that the charge can be proven beyond a reasonable doubt at trial with the information known at the time. That is the criminal standard of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. All right. So once this suspect has been arrested and charged, and we're going to say right now charged with a felony, right, which is a higher class of crime for, say, for more serious crimes than a misdemeanor, the suspect appears in court for arraignment, which is the first court appearance for any misdemeanor or felony. 
at arraignment, this defendant, because now we're calling, we're moving the terminology from suspect to defendant, is told what crime he or she has been charged with and is advised of his or her constitutional rights to a jury or court trial, appointed attorney, presumption of innocence, etc. The charging document in this case, because the judge has to read something out, is called a complaint. And this is also where the conditions and the amount of bail are determined. So in some cases, and I think we've seen this in the news too, generally based on the nature of the charge, the judge imposes conditions on bail, such as no contact with the victim, right? Bail is set in almost any case, every case, right? But it is up to the defendant's own resources to post the bail money. So you're responsible for your bail money, right? Which we could do a whole episode on predatory bail and lending practices there. Once you pay that bail money, that's when you're allowed to be released. All further pretrial procedures, meaning everything that happens before the actual trial, are determined by whether the defendant has been charged with a felony or a misdemeanor. Okay? Can I ask a question? Is that bail money something that is returned to them if they don't run away? Like, is it just held as like a guarantee or a deposit? Or is it like, you just have to pay this and you're never getting this back? I don't think I've not heard that it comes back to you. Wow. So they just steal your money. They're paying to get out of jail. Wow. Okay. Suddenly monopoly and the get out of jail <laughs> card. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So remember, everything now at this point, there's like a fork in the road, right? If you're charged with a misdemeanor, you're charged with a felony. So let's talk about what happens if you're charged with a misdemeanor. At a misdemeanor arraignment, the defendant will be given a chance to enter a plea to the charge, right? So you here is where you plead guilty, not guilty, or third option, you can stand mute, which is the term for remaining silent, which is treated by the court as the same thing as defendant pleading not guilty, basically. If the defendant pleads guilty or no contest, the judge may sentence the defendant on the spot or may reschedule the case for a sentencing date, which will give the probation department time to prepare a pre-sentence report, including background about the defendant and the crime, make a sentencing recommendation, etc. If the defendant stands mute or pleads not guilty, that's when the case will be scheduled for a pretrial conference. All right, so that's misdemeanor. Felony. Let's move to that. At a felony arraignment, the defendant enters a plea to the charge, same thing as misdemeanor, guilty, not guilty, or stand mute. They are then advised of their right to a preliminary examination within 10 court days of the arraignment. And at this point, the defendant requests a court-appointed attorney. The court will review that request at that time. So that's what happens and the differences prior to this pretrial process. So let's move to the pretrial process, because a lot of things can happen prior to trial. There are case discussions involving the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney, right? So the prosecutor here is the district attorney, right? Defense attorney, typically either a court-appointed attorney, or if the defendant has resources, a private attorney. The focus is on possibly resolving the case short of trial, right? So all these pretrial negotiations happen to avoid the actual trial. Depending on the nature of the case, there may be pretrial hearings on constitutional issues, right? Which are, how is a confession obtained, for example? Was that search constitutional? Like, what happened with identification, et cetera, right? Anything that is covered in the Constitution is sort of fair game, depending on the facts of the case and the situations. And the issues are presented to the court through written motions, right? Which, if anyone is a lawyer out there, these motions are the bane of your existence in a pretrial period, because you have to write new ones all the time. And I only did civil except for pro bono, right? So, and the fact of the matter is that you have to write these. If you're in the DA's office, you don't just have one case. 
you might have 20 cases. So you've got 20 different cases going on at the same time. And so you are trying to handle all these things at once, right? So let's say you're writing a motion to suppress evidence in this case. You've also got pretrial conferences in this case. You can see how this could be difficult, right? So the judge must determine whether evidence will be admitted or suppressed at the defendant's trial, right? Which is a lot of what these pretrial motions are doing. Whether there is some legal reason why the defendant should not be tried or decide some other ground rules for trial. So that's sort of the written side of it. There are also preliminary hearings, which are contested hearings before a judge, sometimes called a probable cause hearing. And this is where the prosecutor presents witnesses to convince the judge that there is probable cause to believe a crime was committed and that the defendant actually did it. Because the burden of proof in these preliminary hearings is much less than a trial, so the prosecutor doesn't really call all of its potential witnesses to testify at the prelim, which is what we call preliminary hearings, generally the victim and some eyewitnesses, maybe some of the police witnesses, right? Because the defendant has also at this point an attorney can cross-examine the witnesses and can present the defendant's own evidence, including additional witnesses. So if probable cause is established, so the judge says, yeah, I've heard what you've said. I think there's at least enough to suggest that it's more likely, right, than not that this crime was committed and the defendant did it. The defendant is bound over for trial. If the judge decides that there is not a probable cause that the defendant committed the crime, the charge can be dismissed or it can be reduced to a misdemeanor and moved to trial, right? A defendant can also decide not to kind of go through this part as well. But If a case is bound over for a felony trial, the defendant is again arraigned, right? Which is basically they read the charges that are being brought against you. The charging document this time is called an information. The defendant is then again advised of their constitutional rights and also enters another plea. Guilty, not guilty, stand mute. Why do they do that twice? Because now they have narrowed down the charges against you, potentially. They could have shifted as well. So they have to constitutionally tell you what you're being charged with, they have to give you an opportunity to respond. So, you know, the judge can be involved in this process, as I was talking about, because, you know, there's a lot of motivation to settle prior to trial, right? Because trial is lengthy, trial is expensive, people don't necessarily want to go to trial. But sometimes the cases end up in trial, right? If you watch Law & Order, everything ends up in trial. That's not the case. But anyway, A trial is an adversarial proceeding, right, where the prosecutor must present evidence to prove the defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Again, that's the criminal standard. Civil standard is slightly different. The prosecutor calls all the witnesses necessary to prove the crime. Because remember, in the preliminary hearings, they didn't need to do that. They just needed to get to probable cause. Now they're trying to convince a judge or a jury. The defendant is not required to prove his or her innocence or to present any evidence, but may challenge the accuracy of the prosecutor's evidence because the burden is on the prosecutor to prove the guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Both the defendant and the prosecutor, and the prosecutor here is representing the people of the state of California, right? This is an elected position, have the right to a trial by jury. Sometimes both sides agree to let a judge listen to the evidence and decide the case without a jury. This is called a court trial or a bench trial. In a jury trial, the jury is the trier of fact, right? So they're the ones who go through and assess whether the facts support, you know, the arguments. In a court trial, it's the judge. So after the evidence is presented, the judge or the jury will determine whether the evidence proved beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the crime. If the defendant is found not guilty, the case ends, right? If the defendant is found guilty, a sentencing date will be set. So this was the culpability phase that I'm talking about of a trial. Even just hearing you share all of that makes me think, 
how sucky it is if you did not do a crime and yet are dragged through this process because of those things that you were talking about, because of your race, because of whatever false accusation was made, you know, and how the system set up, because that is a lot to go through. Right. And as I'm talking about this, think about if you don't know that this is the process, right? Like you have no idea you're being charged with a crime you didn't commit. It's not like all these things are happening in a consequential motion. Like this isn't happening in a week, right? So this, it's very confusing and it's obviously very impactful on your future. So yeah. All right. So let's say the defendant is found guilty because otherwise, right, case ends. But if the defendant is found guilty, the probation department prepares a report for the judge, which summarizes the crime and the defendant's personal and criminal backgrounds. And generally, the victim also is contacted for a recommendation of sentence. The probation officer concludes this report with a recommended sentence. So here, right, this is where we start to move into the sentencing part. And this is where there's a lot of discretion. I mean, there are sentencing guidelines for each state, right? And But guidelines being the key word here. And those guidelines also take into account prior crimes. So, you know, you've got, there can be a grid almost where you're kind of finding what that sentence suggestion is given who you are and what you did before. So that's the final step, right? Sentencing. And sentencing in California varies with the crime and can be the most confusing part of the criminal process. Most often sentences are at the judge's discretion, but there's heavy input from the probation department and the DA will often recommend what sentence they feel to be appropriate. So at the time of sentencing, the judge will consider the information in the pre-sentence report before determining the sentence. The parties may correct factual errors in the pre-sentencing report and offer additional evidence relevant to the judge's sentencing decision. And I have seen family members of the defendant speak, right, in cases of especially involving deportation. But so you are allowed to speak at the sentencing hearing as well. Sometimes, and sometimes this happens in the news a lot, right? The victim's family members will also speak because remember, they're also allowed to provide recommendation, which the judge may or may not consider, right? So the judge will consult the sentencing guidelines, what I was talking about before, and the California rules of court, which aid the court in deciding upon an appropriate sentence. But the judge may also consider different alternatives, such as a fine, probation, community service, a sentence to jail or prison, or a combination. The judge must also order or and, you know, mostly does order the defendant to make restitution to any victims who have suffered financial harm. Hmm. That is so much. And I love that you just laid that all out because I feel like you understand. I mean, as a listener right now, because I just listened to you, like you get so much more about all of these steps and who has the power to make decisions. Because let's be clear like you're talking about someone's life and their whole future in the hands of the judge and all the people in the system that make these decisions up about what the consequences should be. As a parent, I also heard like the subtext of this is why we make sure people learn lessons from their mistakes. Cause you screw up once you learn your lesson. You don't do it again. You have a very different sort of forward looking profile than if you continue to make the same mistakes over and over and over again, or not even mistakes, bad choices over and over and over again that harm other people. So anyway, that was a lot. Thank you for that. And regarding the DA, I mean, it sounds like, you know, after the police sort of figure out who it is, that prosecutorial team gets involved fairly early on and really has his or her hand in a lot of the steps along the way. And I'm really seeing why you say this role has such power when it comes to criminal justice. So what's next? 
Yeah. So I want to add one thing to what you said too, because I think that when I was talking about the steps and what you were talking about, you can see the role that money plays, right? Not only in bail, but also in your defense. And I have to believe, right, that in this system, you get what you pay for on a lot of levels because of how busy, remember I talked about the caseload on the DA side, the caseload on the public defender side equally work bad, right? So you think about the level of care that you expect versus the level of care that you may receive, and it may not be fueled by anything except sheer lack of time to focus on each individual defendant. And so I think that this is such a tricky thing when we have, you know, constitutional right to a speedy trial, right? When it's, and you think about who that impacts the most and who, especially if you're a repeat offender in the system, right? How that continues to work against you. So once you're in it, when you think about recidivism, right? And especially our focus on incarceration rather than rehabilitation. All right. So we just went through that whole thing. I mean, I gave you my additional thoughts, but Sarah, are you ready to play DA for a day? Bang, bang, bang. I want to, oh, that's the judge's role. Damn it. That's not a DA. (laughs) That's cool. I mean, you can bang your imaginary gavel too. You're the DA. So you are Jack McCoy. Okay. Because I think nothing is more impactful than thinking about some of the situations that your DA might be facing on a daily basis, because it's really easy to judge and say, this is what I do. But let's hear what you actually decide to do in certain situations. All right, you ready? Okay, I'm listening. Okay, situation number one. A year after successfully completing probation for drug sales, a 21-year-old is again arrested for selling crack cocaine on the street. You've got two options, all right? Would you either... Send this young person to a mentor diversion program where she or he will be paired up with a volunteer mentor who will provide them with specialized programs or supervision, or pursue the maximum felony charges for drug sales, which carry a five-year sentence plus a three-year enhancement for the prior sentence. I know my answer. My answer is A. Okay. Why do you say A? Because I know enough about the science of like psychology and like thriving. And to me, these sorts of things, there's some sort of accountability, right? Like they say that the antidote, if you will, but one of the strongest powerful forces against addiction or against need is to have relationships and have someone care for you and make you feel like you matter. And so if at least they have someone mentoring them, looking out for them, they might be able to say, look, is it because this is something you love doing? Do you think maybe you need a job? Is it, are you doing this because you need income? Let me see if I can hook you up with my network of people. Like there, it offers up so much more possibility if you give somebody a second chance and eight years to a 21 year old, think about your twenties, you're going from your twenties to all of a sudden you're in your thirties. You miss like, that's the last bit of where your brain develops. The brain doesn't stop developing until 25. Then it changes into like neuroplasticity and smaller tweaks, but you're talking about a young person here. And so I would absolutely go a diversion program. Okay, cool. And thank you for sharing your reasoning. I think that's really, I'm a little scared though. I'm like, am I going to wind up being the most like lenient, push over DA ever? Or is this healthy? I don't know. I'm very curious. Well, not if you have reasons, right? Not if you have reasons for, okay. Scenario two, a habitually unhoused man suffers from acute mental illness and in a fit of psychosis attacks someone walking by. The attack results in some injuries to that person walking by, including a broken finger. So you've got two options again. Would you, A, 
pursue the maximum felony charge with a max of <laughs> you're already shaking your head with a max of four years in state prison plus a three year enhancement for great bodily injury. If you're doing math, that's seven years or pursue a misdemeanor charge and require mental health treatment with the goal of helping the man stabilize his mental illness, establish ongoing care and acquire housing. Uh, B, duh. Like, first of all, it shocks me. I mean, there's so many things about this, but first of all, it shocks me that a broken finger is, quote, great bodily injury. I mean, I get it. If I think about being in this position, you're scared because someone randomly attacked you and you did get your finger broken. Maybe you can't type and that's your job for the next, you know, eight weeks or whatever. Like, and the trauma of having been attacked is real. So I'm not diminishing the victim's like fear factor. And at the same time, we as a country have not offered nearly close to enough mental health supports for folks, especially for those experiencing mental illness, right? And I am a huge fan of normalizing conversations around mental health and offering more supports. And I absolutely think that we need to support folks so that they can get well. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Thank you for sharing. All right, last scenario. I'm sure we could do this all day, but last scenario. <laughs> I know. I'm like, where, is, where are we going? A 40-year-old man is arrested for stealing a car and selling it to support his drug habit. The car was recovered and returned to its owner. He has been arrested a few times in the past for petty theft, but this is his most serious offense to date. He has a debilitating addiction to crack cocaine and steals in order to get money to pay for drugs. So, again, two options. Would you, A charge him with the lowest misdemeanor offense, which would require him to pay restitution. More importantly, though, you'd send him to a community drug rehab program to give him the treatment and support needed to cure his dependency on crack cocaine. Or B, pursue the maximum felony charge of grand theft auto, which carries a three-year jail term. So this is when I wouldn't be a good DA because the emotions get in the way, right? Because to me, I know intellectually what I would go with, and that would be like restitution and drug rehab and that sort of stuff. And I understand that even in your 40s, sometimes, you know, you go through rough times and you develop an addiction. And sometimes like it happens later on in your life and you still continue to make these choices because of your addiction. I live in Denver and there have been so many cases of cars being stolen in order to like commit a crime or to finance like just unsavory things. So even when the car is recovered and returned to its owner, the owner of the car is going to be like, Ugh, like, I don't know what happened in this vehicle. I don't know if I want it. So making that right, I think is very, very important. I also think by the time you're in your 40s, like you understand consequences. I don't believe in the concept of jail for a drug addiction, right? And I think you need to have this drug rehab program that you talk about. But what are the accountability factors for that, right? Like say you're given this opportunity to commit to a, a drug rehab center. Do they keep you in it? Do they continue to monitor you? Is the system set up differently than it is right now in our actual world where there, we put money to this so that we the systems have teeth to follow up and build relationships with and, and pursue rehabilitation for the longer term, not just be like, cool, like you stayed off crack cocaine for four weeks. You're good. Go back to your previous settings. Like all the triggers are still there. So I feel like I would almost want something more than these two options. And I don't know that that exists in our current society, but that's right, Eileen. Well, I appreciate you sharing like all of your analyses around it, right? Because I think people, this was the hardest example, I think in a lot of ways, because there are many layers. And I think we have, you know, the fact that we knew his age, right? Which wasn't young. We knew that this has not been the first time he's stolen 
for drugs, I think we've all known how rehab can fail. And so I think you get into a lot of the gray here around what the right sentencing should be. And for some of you, right, you may have had to think about these and and maybe depending on how you felt about a particular situation, or even if we remove, try and remove to the extent we can our own personal biases about those situations or judgments about the people in those situations, you may still have opted for the more serious jail or prison time, right? And so do the DAs for a whole host of reasons, not, you know, including a lot of around sentencing guidelines, but also they're more than at play, right? Because we are not robots. And so we'd argue, in fact, that too often, because more than zero in the sense is too often, DAs behave as though their duty is to represent the victims in the specific cases, often by seeking the maximum prison terms which makes DAs one of the leading contributors to mass incarceration. And so in order to draw that line, let's talk about this a little bit more, because I think that when you're hearing in those three examples I gave you, Sarah, like there are drastically different recommendations, right? So let's say you picked the prison sentence or jail time for each one of those. Three people are now going to be spending multiple years in prison. And this happens a lot. The U.S. has the highest rate of mass incarceration in the world. Despite making up close to 5% of the global population, we have more than 20% of the world's prison population. And since 1970, this was pretty astounding to me, our incarcerated population has increased by 500%. Two million people in jail and prison today, and this was, uh, I think, 2022 numbers, far outpacing population growth and crime. Get this, women are the fastest growing incarcerated population in the United States with overrepresentation by Black and Indigenous women and women who identify as lesbian or bisexual. There are twice as many people incarcerated in local jails awaiting time and presumed in- innocent than in the entire federal prison system. And each year, as we were talking about rehabilitation, 650,000 people nationwide return from prison to their community. Wow. I mean, think about that. If you think about our conversation with Marcus Bullock, and we did a two-part series with him, if you have not listened, I would totally go back and watch that because we, to this day, since before then and since then, have not spoken with anybody else who has spent that time incarcerated and who is willing to talk to us about their experience. Like, re-entering society and all of the challenges we have set up that work against those who are returning to their communities after spending time in prison. And that's 650,000 people a year that are coming back and facing in, like individual lives who are having the hardest time finding a job, not being able to vote in a lot of places, you know, not getting education. Like There's so much stacked against them. So this is not just a let's just put someone away for this crime and then they've paid their price and like they're back. This will affect those individuals for the rest of their lives. A hundred percent. And I want to layer on another level, right, which I sort of hinted at in that last part, because along with everything we just talked about, everything you just mentioned, the U.S. mass incarceration tragedy also because I think of it as a tragedy, right? It fuels racial injustice. One out of every three Black boys born today can expect to go to prison in his lifetime. And just for reference, there are three Black boys, two of which are my own sons, in elementary school at my kid's school. One of those three can expect to go to prison. Okay, And even saying that makes me feel sick, right? But those are the statistics that we are dealing with right now. Do you remember the conversation with Kylan Moore? Yes. Right? 
He said that when he switched schools from this middle class, like wealthy neighborhood to Compton, the kids in his like kindergarten, maybe lower elementary class. Yeah, it was kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Said not like they were basically playing the game of when I go to prison, not if, but when I go to prison, I would probably bet actual money that most of our listeners have not approached prison time or have thought about that. And certainly not in the personal terms that you just mentioned about your boys and the kids in their classes. And so it's one out of every three black boys born today, right? One out of every six Latino boys. And if you're asking, well, there are a lot of white people in prison too, how many white boys? One out of every 17. Those are drastically different numbers. California has the fifth highest disparity in incarceration rates between black and white people. You know, our progressive state, not so progressive in that area. With these statistics, you know, and if you really think about those, one can really start to see how mass incarceration is really intertwined with all other racial disparities. Because if you think about the impact, and we talk about this a lot, right, of the systems of systemic racism across education, across job opportunities, and across what we've just been discussing, the criminal legal system, young people of color are more likely to experience over-policing, increased rates of unfair discipline in school, family separation due to immigration, imprisonment, or the family regulation system, and a lot of, you know, outside forces working against families and low job and educational opportunity, right? All of those things exist, especially for black and brown people in this country. And in turn, you know, going back to the point that you were talking about with Marcus Bullock and people who are formerly incarcerated, as people return from incarceration, they face nearly 50,000 federal, state, and local legal restrictions that make it difficult to reintegrate back into society. And then what happens? The cycle of mass incarceration, poverty, and racial injustice continues. I'm like bobblehead nodding here because it is so shocking when you say it in those clear terms, like let's peel open our eyes here and see what's really happening. And so that said, I know we've heard this a lot, right? And I, even though I know the answer, I'm going to ask it specifically. So we record this now. People say, well, but you know, isn't high incarceration the rate, like the results of high crime rates? Like they do all the bad stuff, so they should get incarcerated is basically the flip side of that logic, right? Yes. Sarah, are you reading my next door? Because I feel like this is the exact (laughs) conversation that happens. Um, Because apparently removing or rethinking policing has made people panic that, of course, you know, our prisons, which are overcrowded anyway, are just going to be emptied. Not true. So let's talk about that, right? Because it's a common misconception that high incarceration numbers are necessary to keep people safe from violent offenders. And I think that's the basic fear that exists, right? However, one in three people who are locked up, right, are in a local jail where the majority have not been convicted, but are unable to afford bail. Remember, the money runs the system. And the term violent crime, I'm using my finger quotes, is a legal designation that can include non-physical harm, such as burglary or manufacturing metamphetamines, right? So like, if you think about that included in violent crime, that really widens that notion. It's not carjackings, murders necessarily. There is a lot included under that violent crime umbrella. And even in the cases of people convicted of violent offenses, you know, studies have shown that decades in prison is the wrong answer. A 2017 Vera Institute of Justice study found that increases in incarceration have had almost no impact 
on crime rates. Because the reality is that most crime is a result of poverty and destruction of community stability. And if you think about that cycle, right, that vicious cycle, high incarceration rates only further contribute to these conditions. So I think people hear that and they're like, okay, well, even if that's true, like how do we achieve public safety then if we're not trying to lock people up? Well, places, you know, like the ACLU, which we relied on a lot of their information for this episode and other groups, more at the grassroots level too, are focusing on community well-being first. And that's something that we've talked a lot about on this podcast for sure. Because, you know, to be very frank, the impacts of crime are real. And too often these impacts fall on communities of color, both as they experience crime and as they experience the destruction caused by mass incarceration. So if we're thinking about how we achieve true public safety for everyone, we need that level of system-wide solution that really divests from, you know, criminalization and incarceration and invests, right, in education, family support system. I know we've said this a lot on the podcast, but mental health and addiction treatments and other proven methodologies that really make both families and communities whole. You know, we can, and if you think about that too, we can offer victims of crime and communities, you know, so much more healing and crime prevention than simply locking people up for as long as possible. And district attorneys, going back to the whole point of this episode, right, are at the front lines of being able to make these decisions, just like you were when you played DA for a day. I liked that game. Let's talk about specifics then, because if the DAs really are at the front lines of making these decisions, as we know, they have power to change who they lock up. So if I'm thinking about, you know, who I want to elect next, what do I want to hear these DAs say about how they can lower incarceration rates? Yeah. So I'm going to focus on my home state of California again, because this does vary from state to state. And so if you're not in California and you're listening to this, again, look at your own DAs. But DAs in California have the power to choose to lower incarceration rates and address racial disparities in three immediate ways. All right. One, decision to prosecute. Because DAs have have absolute discretion, right, to decline to prosecute or to decide which charges to prosecute. So Sarah, back to your whole abortion you know, concept, right? This is the role of the DA, right? The DA has absolute discretion to decline to prosecute or decide which charges to prosecute. For example, DAs can choose not to prosecute low-level or public health offenses like simple drug possession, which would be huge, and can decide whether to charge sentencing enhancements, remember we had those in DA for a day, that can add decades of time to a person's incarceration. All right. So decisions to prosecute. And this is pretty standard among all DAs. Okay, Diversion is the second one. DAs can recommend alternatives to the criminal legal system that allow a person to address underlying causes such as mental health needs, drug treatment, and veterans diversion. Again, back to that DA for a day. There was always that option, right, to alternatives to jail or prison time. Finally, DAs can also deal in plea offers and sentencing because DAs can offer plea agreements and seek sentences that do not include imprisonment or recommend the minimum years for imprisonment. If you hear about wealthy white individuals, a lot of times they get a plea agreement, right, which does not include imprisonment. Even thinking about the varsity blues scandals, right, or anything along those lines, right, money can get you out of this. But let's think bigger, because if money can't get you out of this, you might be the one who needs this the most, right? 
courts will frequently defer to the DA's judgment here as well. I appreciate you pointing out those three ways to look at it, because that is a fair amount of discretion. Also going to highlight a term that I noticed you're using. I think this was either at least the second time you use it, but you said criminal legal system instead of the criminal justice system. And I appreciate that that flip of the language, because I think it really is articulating more clearly what we're actually discussing. So let's say we hear you on those three points and, you know, DAs in our states, as we hear this podcast and we're looking up what our state DAs are doing, say they are fueling incarceration numbers and increasing the rate of the population who are currently imprisoned. How do we hold DAs accountable? Okay, great question. Because I know we love to focus on the practical, what everyone can do, right? Because everyone has a role. And one of the primary ways you can hold DAs accountable to end mass incarceration and racial injustice in the criminal legal system is by voting, right? You know, we love the power of voting because it really is power. And both in California and Colorado, DAs are elected officials, right? So you have a large, you know, ability to control who has that office. But I think it's also important to note that real prosecutorial accountability comes during the off election years, right? Like this year, when people come together in their communities to uncover the choices DAs are making and really demand that they put the community and racial justice first. So again, 2023, if you're listening to this when we're recording it, or or even, you know, when we release it, or even sometime during this year, this is one of those years. So friends, Find out who the DAs are in your state, in your county, right? What their records look like and ask yourself and them, are they serving the entire community? Are they doing their jobs in the way you think they should be? And if the answers to these questions start looking a lot like no, then we need to ask more questions and you need to start taking action in your own communities. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. 